Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, uh, today's show, I want to talk about the third quarter preliminary GDP numbers. What do they really indi indicate? Uh, well, you know, mainstream media and politicians are really hyping it. Uh, is it uh, justifiable? Well, let's peel the onion on GDP and see what the real growth has been and where it's going. Uh, and then I want to spend some time talking about war. Yeah, we got uh, two wars and the third one being planned. The uh, U.S. is now in a three-front, at least economically military, build-up war preparation or participation. We've got the Ukraine war. We've got uh, the U.S. involvement here, deep involvement in the Israeli-Hamas war, soon maybe to be the uh, U.S.-Israeli-Iran uh, war. So we need to talk about that. And uh, then also some commentary on uh, the Ukraine war, where that is. Uh, so in uh, a few words on the UAW settlement. Okay, so let's jump right into this thing. A lot to cover this week. Here, uh, very quickly, uh, a few brief comments on the UAW settlement at Ford. Uh, pretty much what I predicted it would be, if you recall, in past shows and on my blog and on my Twitter feed here, I talked about uh, a total settlement uh, over five years uh, of uh, 25 to 30% total wage benefit package cost, 25-30%. Why? Because the real pattern here was set in Canada. Ford, uh, several weeks ago, settled with Canadian auto workers up there who aren't part of the UAW uh, for a 25% package. So uh, that was kind of the benchmark. And as I've been saying, well, there'll be a little bit of a, of a uh, sweetening uh, to that. Uh, but that uh, means the settlement in the U.S. will be somewhere between 25 and 28%. Well, okay, now we've got Ford and UAW on a tentative agreement, uh, almost certainly to uh, be voted up because the union would not tell its Ford workers to go back to work before a ratification vote if it didn't think that it was in the bag. So uh, that's what we got. Well, what is it? It's a 25% package, right, with some token changes in retirees' pensions, as I predicted, some changes on the two-tier uh, wage structure and labor force that haven't been clarified yet. I don't know what that is, but it looks like it's not across the board. It's just some partial change, and they're referring to auto parts companies. It may not be the big three assembly plants. Uh, anyway, uh, that's up in the air. We'll have to see how that uh, gets clarified. Uh, the term is uh, four and a half years. Uh, I had indicated that if it was five years, there'd have to be a COLA, cost of living adjustment. That doesn't appear to be there in this package, cost of living, which is really a shame, <laughs> you know. Uh, and the uh, right to strike over plant closures in the future. Well, you know, that's an easy concession by the company because if it's closing down, it doesn't care if you close it down. Right? You just may make it easy for them. And if uh, you strike and close it down, they get bigger tax, tax write-offs for shutting down. So that's no big deal. 
Um, as far as the electric vehicle plants being under union contract, no mention of that in this settlement, but I'm almost sure that that will be included. Uh, if not immediately, then uh, in a separate agreement of some kind. Maybe not. Maybe not. We'll see. Anyway, the package is 25%. But the problem is, how do you calculate that 25% wage and benefit increase? You know, obviously, the benefit increase, you know, for retirees, that, that's minuscule. That's not going to be very much of that 25%. But how do you do that 25%? Is it uh, 25% in annual wage rate increases? Uh, is it does it come in a lump sum payment up front? You know, that's what um, business likes. They like to throw a lump sum because it doesn't raise the wage schedule uh, and therefore inflation in future negotiations. They like to do a, a lump sum payment. And it's kind of attractive to the workers to get a, you know, after they've been squeezing and running down their savings to get a, a, a big lump sum payment. Uh Problem with a lump sum, too, is the workers got to pay more taxes on it. So uh, that's not such a good deal. Lump sums are, are, are not good. Uh, but it's unclear whether there's lump sum payments here in this 25%, whether there's a first, what is the first year increase? I understood in the Canadian deal it was a 10% immediately uh, uh, increase in the first year and less than in the outgoing years in a four-year agreement. I think they got COLA up there. I'm not sure. Okay, uh, but the other thing is, uh, how much uh, is that calculation, 25%, simply in the wage progressions? You know, uh, you uh, in the auto industry and especially in manufacturing everywhere, uh, you, you have a, a wage increase progressions. In other words, you get your annual increase in the contract, but then if you get uh, time in grade, uh, six months, one year, whatever, you get a progression increase and then uh, you know another year you get another pro progression increase that's not the same as first year or annual wage hikes uh, it's in addition to the annual wage hikes now what Ford did agree was to reduce the wage progression time from eight years to four years that's significant but I'm, I'm I suspect that they're factoring in these wage progressions uh, wage increases in that 25%, which means that uh, the workers in four and a half years will not get a 25% or 10% uh, actual wage hikes. Uh, they'll have to uh, be in grade and uh, have to rise uh, over time. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of ways that management plays with, uh, with uh, the money uh, and the estimations of the cost of these contracts. You gotta, you gotta take whatever they say the package is with a grain of salt. Uh, usually, the you know they overestimate it when they when they give uh, well when they come to a contract to make it look better, right? And uh, the union leadership likes to do that too because it makes it look like they got more. Uh, but actually, the workers end up uh, getting something somewhat less. Uh, okay, so that's the UAW settlement. The others will fall in line pretty soon. Uh, GM and Stellantis. This may have been a deal with Stellantis too. I'm not sure, uh, but uh, you know the big thing is it's not massive concessions that the UAW made in 2007, and 2019. Uh, have they uh, uh, closed the gap on those concessions? Uh, well, let's see what what the the total package and terms are. 
Uh, of course they have. This is not a concession bargaining. It's an attempt to take back or, or retake back some of the concessions that they already had before the concessions. Uh, so it's a step forward, just as, uh, you know, the uh, Longshore and the Teamsters and UPS and others have uh, have had this ship. And the question is, they've given away so many concessions for so many years. Uh, you know, the auto workers' wages started at about $16 an hour. I mean, in California, you can flip burgers now for 20 uh, and it topped out at like only $32 an hour. That's like 50000 60,000 annual income, you know, try living on 60,000 one paycheck in places like California or New York or places like that. And uh, good luck if you have a family of four, uh, you're, you're going to be de facto poverty, believe me. Okay, so, uh, you know, auto workers have fallen way behind. They used to be the wage and pay and benefit leaders in the country. Uh, before all this uh, uh, neoliberal industrial policy of compressing wages uh, began to take effect back in the 80s. All right, so I don't want to spend any more time on the UAW settlement. Let's move on. Uh, let's move on to uh, U.S. GDP, right? Okay, preliminary GDP came out today for the third quarter. You know, uh, the, they issued three reports on GDP. The early one is often adjusted uh, and then a couple months later, they uh, uh, or six weeks later, they they really released the second uh, estimate of GDP, uh, which is always more accurate. And then the third one comes after that, and that's uh, always you know, also very minimal change. Uh, but the first one uh, very clearly uh, is 4.9 percent GDP growth in the third quarter. Now you got to understand that that's annualized annualized 4.9. The U.S. is the only country that annualizes its quarterly GDP. In other words, it says, oh, 4.9 is what we'll get for the whole year, 2023, if all the other quarters continue you know, to grow at whatever growth rate they were, right? 4.9% is annualized. And it's not simply just, uh, uh, okay, 4.9% would be uh, what, uh, you divide 4.9, right? 1.2%, 1.25% actual quarter to quarter increase, right? Uh, so it says, uh, you know, 4.9% is more like actual 1.25% growth third quarter over, over uh, this, the second quarter. Uh, no, no. Uh, they're not equally uh, distributed uh, quarter to quarter when they do annualizations. Uh, the annualization uh, in the summer is larger uh, than it is uh, in, uh, you know, in, in the other quarters, particularly uh, the, the winter, right? Um, actually, if you look quarter to quarter, uh, the U.S. economy grew only 1.2% versus the second quarter, right? Um all other economies, like I say, they, they only look quarter to quarter. You know, how much growth did we have this quarter over last quarter? Quarter being three months. Uh, but the U.S. is the only one that annualizes well. It makes it look really good when you throw it out there in the, in, in the media, right? Okay. Um, if you break down GDP, there's four, four main areas of GDP. If you want to see where the growth is coming from, because that's important to determine where it's going, 
Okay. Uh, uh, one, the biggest one is consumer spending, right? Consumer spending uh, depends on who's measuring it. It's usually uh, two-thirds to 70% of GDP of the U.S. economy, right? Uh, the U.S. economy GDP, uh, very simply defined, is all the goods and services produced and sold in the year. Well, if you produce and sell, you've got a price. So part of, of the growth uh, is what we call price increase growth. That's sometimes called nominal GDP. Nominal GDP is always higher than four. Uh, you know, the, the real GDP, this 4.9% number is, you know, the real GDP uh, adjusted for inflation. Uh, now, there's some problems with that because if you assume inflation is lower than it actually is, then the inflation adjustment to the nominal GDP is going to be low, and therefore the difference is real GDP, and that's going to be higher. But if you estimated inflation more accurately, uh, then inflation would be a bigger share of that total, and real GDP would be lower than they reported. Now, I'll talk about this more shortly, but basically, uh, uh, the inflation index that's used to adjust money, nominal GDP, is the lowest index they got. So they take the lowest index called the GDP deflator, and they use that to adjust nominal GDP for inflation, and they get a bigger real GDP to get the 4.9, or actually the 1.2 for the quarter. Uh, there's two other inflation indices. Uh, one is the personal consumption expenditure price index. Uh, that adjusts more inflation. And then there's a CPI that all of us have to live with, that's the real inflation index, and that's much higher. Look, if you have 4.9% real GDP and CPI, consumer price index, is around 4%, then real GDP is less than 1% growth. Well, did we really only have 1% growth in the quarter? Annualized, by the way, that's annualized. Right? So the quarterly growth would be, quote, or 0.2.25, right? A quarter of 1%. That's nothing. That's minuscule, right? You could argue that, uh, you know, if they really accurately adjusted for inflation using the CPI, then there'd be almost no growth in the third quarter compared to the fourth, uh, second. Uh, but they use this very low-ball figure, which is the GDP deflator, which is full of assumptions. You see, the GDP deflator is not obtained like the CPI is obtained. The CPI, uh, the Labor Department actually goes out and and has uh, um, workers, you know, government workers, Labor Department workers go out and uh, uh, look in the stores and look at and research what are the actual prices, you know, in the past month. And then it uh, also interviews people uh, workers, households, whatever, uh, and gathers data on, on prices in other ways. So, uh, you know, it, it's far more accurate than the GDP deflator, which is nothing but assumptions about prices. You know, I mean, there's 
millions of goods and services. There's no way the government can you know, come up with a GDP deflator, which measures the whole economy, not just consumers. Uh, there's no way they can come up with an accurate actual survey. They gather some data and they have a lot of assumptions that comes up with the GDP deflator price index, lowballs actual inflation, you know, and they then adjust nominal GDP to get the real GDP that we're talking about in the paper. Uh, I mean, look, all these government statistics, you know, they're, they're full of methodologies and assumptions and so forth. And unless you understand those methodologies, you, you, you're going to be misled by, you know, well, whatever the media wants to get you to believe. Now, I'm not saying that the government is lying, uh, you know, when it says 4.9 and 1.2, whatever, uh, or its inflation indexes and so forth. You know, it's it's not a question of conscious misrepresentation, lying, uh, but it is misrepresentation uh, because you use statistics and methodologies and all kinds of assumptions to come up with a lower number, when we're talking about prices, uh, than actually exists. The same thing happens with unemployment statistics. You know, I talked about that in previous shows. I'm not going to do it again, but, you know, they cherry pick. They got the numbers that come and give you a three point. 8% unemployment rate, which is nonsense, right? Uh, or they say, oh, you know, the number of jobs grew significantly last last uh, month, you know. There, there's all, I've talked about that in previous shows. Go back and and uh, listen to them if you're interested in, in how uh, employment statistics are manipulated as well. And again, they're not lying. They're just using the methodologies and the assumptions and, you know, coming up with the uh, Numbers, look, the government wants, does not like volatility in unemployment and prices. It costs a lot of money. You know, inflation is actually higher. Well, then the government's got to pay uh, uh, 45 million Social Security retirees even more every year. So the government has an incentive not to do that. And, of course, the companies like that, too, because if inflation uh, officially is lower, they can say to their workers, look, you know, inflation last year was only 4%. We're giving you 4%. Yeah, well, when the inflation is actually six or seven percent, right? Uh, okay, so um, that's the first thing to understand about these these numbers. Now, if we break down GDP, there are four main categories in GDP. One is consumption. I started talking about that, uh, which is about two thirds plus of the economy of of GDP in general, right? Uh, and then you got business investment, uh, which is another ten, twelve percent or so. Uh, and then you got government spending, which is 20, 23 <clears> percent. <throat> and of course, government spending breaks down into actual spending on uh, war and, and defense and so forth and uh, other education, transportation, so forth, right? Government spending. Uh, by the way, government spending uh, statistics do not include spending on Social Security and Medicare. That's a separate box. Uh, okay, and that's true for taxes as well. Your taxes uh, do not pay for Social Security, and there's a special payroll tax that covers that. Uh, okay, so um, consumer spending is two-thirds, roughly. Uh, uh, business investment, maybe 12%. Thereabouts varies quite a bit. 
depending on a business cycle. Government 22, 24%, depending on also the business cycle and recessions. Uh, and then um, there's what's called uh, net exports. Uh, what the government does in GDP uh, estimation is to um, take the total value of imports, what Americans spend on goods that are imported to the U.S., and subtract that from uh, the total value, sales value of U.S. exports uh, that are sold abroad. So it's exports minus imports. Right? And for some reason, they call that net exports. They should have given it another term. A little confusing because it's not just exports. It's exports minus imports. Now, the problem is uh, the U.S., typically uh, buys uh, more imports than it sells exports, right? So it's a negative number, and that usually subtracts a couple percent from GDP. Now, when you got the rest of the world in the recession, of course, uh, uh, then uh, they're not buying as many U.S. exports, right? And if the U.S. is still growing, then the imports uh, increase, and uh, you get a bigger... Uh, Negative number. So, but but you know the net exports thing is not uh, the most important of the four areas. Uh, the four areas, you know, consumption, business, investment, and government spending are the key players here. Uh, now, you know, within within these four categories, you have subcategories that are important. And when you talk about consumption. Uh, you're talking about uh, spending on goods and services. Goods meaning actual things, services. You know, the economy is 80% services. There's all kinds of services, personal services of all kinds. You know, education services, financial services, uh, medical services, etc. cetera. Uh, goods meaning, you know, cars and homes and all these th different things. Uh, so, you know, durable goods, uh, means goods that last roughly more than one year, three years, whatever. Uh, Non-durable goods are goods that uh, uh, you consume them when you buy them, like gasoline, that's a good, uh, but you consume it. Food, that's a good, but you consume it when you buy it. So non-durables. Automobiles, oh, well, they last, hopefully. Uh, so uh, those are, are durables. Uh, and altogether, you know, it makes up uh, consumer spending. Now, consumer spending, you know, can be driven by wages and wage income. If you get an increase in your wages, you may spend more, especially if, you know, your annual income is pretty low. You'll, you'll probably spend it. If you're rich, making a half a million dollars a year, an increase in wage income, maybe you get a salary from your company as senior manager, uh, you know, you're going to save a lot of that. You're going to invest it, right? You're going to hoard it, sit on it, save it. Uh, you're not going to go out and buy a second yacht or something, right? Uh, so if if the income rises at the high end, it has less of an effect on stimulating the economy. If it occurs at the low end, uh, just about all of it is spent, and therefore it stimulates the economy better. Uh, the difference is what's called the multiplier effect, you know? Uh, a multiple of the initial spending uh, becomes a secondary spending, maybe even a tertiary spending. Uh, and the larger the initial, then uh, the more the second and tertiary spending in the, in the spending cycle. Uh, okay, so uh, 
you know, the multiplier effect for the rich, uh, higher up you go on the income scale is lower. You know, it's not as good a, a, a boost to the overall economy. Uh, so you can spend based on wage income. Uh, if you don't have enough wages like most workers in the median and below, well, then how are you going to spend? Well, you're going to use credit cards, right? Or you're going to drag money out of your 401k plan to pay for a big medical expense or kids' college or something like that. Uh, or maybe uh, you get a second or third job. Well, that, that's wage income, too. But if you don't have wage income, you know, you, you got to use credit cards or use credit of some form. Or, uh, uh, you know, you got to take it out of savings. Well, the savings for those at the median and below income level is gone. You know, they, they hype a lot about, uh, oh, you know, the savings rate and uh, we gave so much money in, in checks and child care and all these other concessions during uh, COVID, which are all gone now, of course. We gave so much money that, uh, you know, they got too much money. Workers got too much money, and therefore they're spending it and driving up demand and prices as a result. Well, that's just not true. Most of the savings accrued to the high end. Some of the workers at the high end, top 10% uh, uh, workers, you know, in, in finance or in uh, tech or something, medical, uh, yeah, uh, you know, there, there's more savings up there. But most of the savings went to small business and big business, um, went to the top end. Savings rates are still very high among the wealthy. Uh, and, of course, they were boosted even more during COVID uh, than uh, workers. And, you know, the workers boost with the savings, uh, excess savings uh, uh, dissipated pretty, pretty quick. And when they say, oh, wages are rising at 4%, well, that includes, you know, the wages and salaries of managers and professionals and all the rest. Again, that 4% is an average and is skewed to the top skewed to the high end. They always give you averages, which covers up what's going on at the median and below. So you got to take with a grain of salt, oh, 4%, wages are rising 4%. Not, not for 100 million of the workers, they're not. You know, maybe for the 10, 20 million, uh, you know, at the high end. And then it averages out to 4%, which means the high end is getting like 6, 7, 10% <laughs> to get a 4% average. Well, keep that in mind. Uh, well, if wages uh, for the median below aren't really rising that much, uh, where's it coming from? Well, it's coming from credit cards. Yeah, to some extent, 401k drag, uh, but uh, mo mostly credit cards. Credit cards are over a trillion dollars now, credit card debt. Um, student debt, depending on how you estimate it, is anywhere from 1.7 to 1.9 trillion dollars in debt. Now they're paying it, right? October, uh, you know, the consumer uh, pushing the economy in the third quarter uh, does not yet reflect the fact that people are getting hit, 40 million people are going to get hit with big increases here uh, in student debt payments because they are variable rates, uh, going to get hit big time. And if you're paying more for, for that, for student debt, well, then you got less to spend on real goods and services. Uh, and that's true with all forms of debt that you may have. And it's true with uh, inflation. You know, if we're paying more for gasoline and 
and diesel fuel and uh, and now uh, you know fuel oil for the winter and natural gas, which we all are. Uh, well, then you got less to spend on goods and services. So this boost in the consumer side in the third quarter, not because of wage incomes, you know, uh, because of the rise in credit debt, debt related spending, uh, and um, prior to uh, you know the big run up in, in inflation that's coming and uh, student uh, student debt payments which have already come, uh, but you know, consumer spending. Consumer spending uh, was the big contributor here to this uh, 1.2% quarter-to-quarter um, GDP rise in the third quarter, a.k.a. 4.9, right? Uh, what about business? Well, just as we, we, we had subcategories in consumer spending, durables, non-durable services, right? We have uh, subcategories in investment, business investment. What are they? Uh, well, the big one is uh, business investment in structures, buildings, and so forth. And uh, even more important than that, uh, business investment in plant and equipment, buying equipment. That's what you think is real business investment. Yeah, okay. But there's a third and a fourth category that have become more important here, particularly the fourth in uh, recent years, last decade. Well, the third one is inventories. If business thinks that uh, the economy is going to do well, it uh, particularly seasonally before Christmas, it uh, loads up on inventories, products that it intends to sell. Right? Well, if you look at third quarter GDP, it was a big buildup in inventories. 1.3% of that 4.9% uh, was business inventory accumulation. Now, if they don't sell... Those inventories here in the fourth quarter, if fourth quarter is a bust, first, first quarter next year is a bust, which it will be, uh, then that positive contribution to business inventories investment uh, will become uh, negative, negative big time. Inventories fluctuate. Well, the third quarter is the quarter when businesses naturally build up inventories in expectation of holiday sales. So uh, that kind of overinflated, that seasonal uh, change overinflated uh, third quarter uh, GDP, just as uh, third quarter GDP consumer spending overinflated by uh, credit spending, credit card spending, and of course, overinflated by underestimating inflation. All right, what else is there? What else can we say about? Uh, a business investment besides inventories. Well, plant and equipment, the most important category of business investment, was zero. It was flat. Businesses aren't investing to expand in the future. They're not adding plant and equipment. They had built up inventories, but they're not adding plant and equipment. Well, that's ominous for going forward if it's flat. You know, in the second quarter, they were investing a little bit in plant and equipment, you know, some factory building there. Uh, but, uh, of course, office buildings, no, office buildings, there nothing going on. Uh, malls, nope, nothing going on in terms of uh, structures. Uh, but factories, a little bit, 
a little bit in the spring, but now that's gone too. So no real business plant and equipment spending, flat, zero. Now there's a fourth category of business investment, right? Uh, which overall was pretty much uh, flat. If you took the four, the three categories I'm talking about, structures, uh, plant and equipment, structures, equipment, inventories. Inventories, yes, offset by declines in plant and equipment. Uh, the fourth category is what's called intellectual property. Now, this is a new category that was created in 2013 to boost the numbers for business investment and therefore GDP. Why is it uh, questionable intellectual property? What do we mean by that? Oh, logos and trademarks and copyrights, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and that includes as well, intellectual property includes as well, uh, research and development costs. You know, it used to be a cost, R&D, but now it's an investment. Uh, so now they take that and they, instead of a, a, a business cost that didn't contribute to GDP, now they consider it a contribution to GDP. In other words, in 2013, the government redefined GDP, especially business investment, which was lagging, to get a bigger number. Yeah, the government typically does this periodically. It, it redefines the statistics to make them look better or not so bad. Well, in 2013, uh, they redefined GDP business investment to add intellectual property uh, and, uh, you know, R&D and logos and all that uh, to GDP. And that added $500 billion to GDP in 2013, and then they retroactively changed the numbers previous years, and going forward, it's been that 500 billion, I don't know what it is now, but it's uh, uh, certainly a big part of business investment. Now the problem with intellectual property is, how do they know the true value of intellectual property? Well, very easily. Uh, the government says to businesses, well, tell us what your trademark or your logo is worth. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the company likes to boost that number because it makes its own balance sheet look better. It's worth more, right, if they boost that official number. But it's, it's just, uh, you know, pie in the sky to estimate the price of intellectual property. And then the government arbitrarily assumes an inflation ad adjustment to that number that the uh, corporations, big corporations, give uh, the government, and you get this big IP, intellectual property, property uh, fourth element of business investment that boosts the number for business investment every quarter. Well, it did this quarter too, and inventories did, but the other categories of structures and real equipment were so bad that the total net number for business investment came out pretty much flat. It would be negative. Business investment would be negative if we did not have that redefinition of GDP to include intellectual property, R&D, and so forth 10 years ago. Yeah, it's been boosting business investment every year. Business investment is actually lower than ever before. It's a chronic problem. Business, well, why? Because businesses are investing their capitalists are investing their investment abroad. 
or they're taking their money and they're throwing it into the financial asset markets. You know, your typical large uh, Fortune 500 company spends uh, uh, a lot of money investing in financial assets, markets, financial markets of various kinds. And its profits, about a third of its profits are called portfolio profits. It comes from investing in financial assets, which are very low taxed, you know, by the way. Um, and there's a lot of ways to, to shelter that, but you can't shelter it at all. So, you know, what, what you got is a lot of a lot of money being invested in financial asset markets by business and it's crowding out investing and expanding in real goods and services. There's less. Businesses putting more money into financial assets uh, than ever before because they're more profitable. Yeah, they're more profitable and they're safer investment because you can put your money in and out. But if you're going to build another factory, well, you know, that's kind of risky. It takes time and you got to get suppliers and, you know, workers and so forth. So capitalists in the 21st century uh, like to invest in financial assets of all kinds. It's called the financialization of the capitalist economy, which is going on. But the problem is uh, financial assets don't create jobs in small businesses. There's nothing created, it's all on paper, you see. Uh, and that means more difficulty in growing jobs over the long term. Uh, and, uh, you know, other problems related uh, uh, to, uh, you know, growth and in income and GDP, etc. Okay, so, bottom line, business investment flat. Consumer spending going on credit and high-end people that have money. Uh, government spending, uh, well, that was uh, eight-tenths of one percent of the 4.9 percent. Okay, so government spending, which is mostly war spending now, right? War spending on the military and, and other defense. You know, the defense total defense budget in this country is well over a trillion dollars a year. Pentagon is $850 billion now, not counting the hundred-plus billion that they're going to pass for Ukraine and Israel. Not counting that. You know, that's, that's an addition. That's called, uh, well, they sometimes call it an overseas contingency operation, OCO. You know, it costs money to send four aircraft carriers to the Middle East and all the other buildup U.S. going on now in the eastern Mediterranean. That costs money. Well, that's called OCO, and that's on top of the Pentagon's 850 billion. And then you got at least 300 billion more. That's actually defense. That they don't call it defense, but you know, veterans benefits, uh, energy department, where the U.S. military uh, uh, you know buys all the oil and fuel. Uh, U.S. military is the single biggest purchaser of fossil fuels, oil, gas, whatever, in the world. Biggest, single biggest entity of buying fossil fuels, right? Uh, so, you know, you've got uh, other areas too, uh, you know, the State Department and the NSA, and you know, they, they have a, a budget, and part of that is spent are, are military-related ex expenditures. The CIA is in there. Um, other areas like, uh, well, they don't even report it, the black budget, they call it. It doesn't get, get put on print in these reports of what the U.S. budget is. Uh, that, that's for um, uh, 
uh, new weaponry, you know, next generation weaponry. And that's at least $75 billion a year. That doesn't get reported. Uh, so anyway, total defense is $1.1 trillion, uh, And that's all going up. Pentagon got more money, got $80 billion coming. Uh, well, that's, you know, the eight-tenths of 1%. Uh, inventory is 1.3%. Uh, consumer spending, 2, 2 point something, 2.5. <laughs> if you look at uh, the real core of the economy, which is uh, consumption and investment, uh, instead of 4.9, it's only 2.5%. 2.5% consumption and investment. That's the real economy. That's the core. Third quarter, 2.5%. Not 4.9, with all the limitations, definitional and others that I've just talked about, right? Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, the, the forecast is, uh, you know, quote, it's 4.9% here in the third quarter, actually 2.5 in the core of the core. Uh, but that uh, even the 4.9% forecasts are uh, in the fourth quarter, and first quarter of next year is really going to uh, contract. Uh, growth less than 1% per quarter estimated, forecasted for the fourth quarter and the first quarter. Well, they'll be lucky. <laughs> they'll be lucky to do that. But for now, you know, it's a big hype. It's a big hype. Uh, uh, so, you know, to sum up, you got to understand the role of the price indexes in this. Uh, you got to understand whether it's wages or, con uh, or, or credit that's uh, behind the consumer spending. Also, you got to understand uh, the inflation adjustment indexes. Uh, by the way, consumer spending, just as, a, as an addendum to what I've said, consumer spending, about 30% of that is retail sales. Okay. Now, retail sales, when you get these numbers, you know, every every month, oh, retail sales are five percent, six percent, whatever. That's not adjusted for inflation. That number is never adjusted for inflation. Why? Because they can't go out there, uh, you know, and, and get the, every retail item uh, that's sold at the time it's sold and get that data. It's impossible to collect that data. So they just report the nominal not the inflation adjustment, and the number's always higher. But if the CBI is like 5% and uh, retail sales are 5%, that means there's no net gain in retail sales. It's all price increases. Well, they will adjust that by assumptions that they make when they throw retail sales into uh, the total bag of consumer spending. Anyway, uh, you know, I wouldn't get too excited about the soft landing that now Janet Yellen and others are really uh, hyping that exists. No, I wouldn't get too, too excited about that. Um, okay, so let's talk about the wars now. Let's talk about the wars. Israeli-Hamas war. Uh, America opened the second front here very clearly. And, uh, you know, what's obvious now is the Biden administration is totally behind uh, Israel, whatever they want to do, you know, it's opened up. Uh, the U.S. has opened up its stockpile of bombs in uh, in uh, Israel, twenty-five thousand bombs. I and I suppose that that's mostly what uh, they're dropping on Gaza right now. Uh, they've dropped in three weeks. They, the Israelis, dropped in three weeks more bombs on Gaza than the U.S. did in twenty years in Afghanistan. 
I mean, they're just obliterating the place. And uh, they're uh, not making any distinctions about babies or children. You know, so I heard last week the estimate is 5,700 people have been killed so far by the bombing. Uh, 2,000 of those were, were, were children. Yeah. Now, you know, at the beginning of this whole thing, we, we, we heard a lot of hype about, oh, beheading babies. The, you know, the Hamas is beheading babies, right? Where did that come from? Oh, some soldier told CNN reporter, and CNN reporter believed it without checking it out and reported it. It went national. Biden even said in one of his uh, interviews, oh, they're beheading babies without checking it out. Well, we've seen this before. Yeah, and that's, that's what happened in the first Gulf War. Remember that the, they swung public opinion in favor of uh, uh, 1990 uh, first Gulf War because uh, all the talk about, uh, oh, you know, the Iraqis were uh, taking babies out of the incubators and killing them, right? Incubator babies. Yeah, it was reported by a nurse. Well, the nurse turned out to be a, a niece, <laughs> a niece of the king <laughs> who wasn't a nurse at all. Oh, but for them, it's it's wrong public opinion. Well, they tried to do that here with the uh, beheading the babies. No photos, nothing, no proof. Eventually retracted by the CNN reporter. Yeah, and in fact, the White House, after Biden fell for it, uh, uh, the White House had to come out with a statement. No, President Biden did not see any beheaded babies. Right. This is what the U.S. does whenever it wants to go to war creates a false flag. You know, we, we did that in Vietnam with the Tonkin Gulf. We did it in 91 with uh, incubator babies. Um, we did it to remember the Maine, sinking the Lusitania. Well, yeah, it, it goes on. It's, it's, it's very typical of the U.S. here. Uh, and then, of course, Biden goes to the Middle East and he gets off the plane and he publicly says, you know, we're 100% behind uh, uh, Israel, whatever they want to do, we support it. You know, a blank check. And he was supposed to meet with the Arab leaders the next day in Jordan. Well, of course they canceled it, right? So the U.S. influence in the Middle East is Zippo. It has no influence at all. And you got, you got Biden shooting his mouth off. I mean, he could guarantee Israel this total support without shooting his mouth off the way he does. Uh, and but, th but this guy can only read from a script given to him, and then he doesn't read very well. You know, whenever he shoots his mouth off, uh, he sinks U.S. Uh, political interests. Uh, I mean, he, he's he's a disaster. Even for the empire, he's a disaster, right? And then we had uh, last week the incident of uh, of the U.N. Uh, Secretary General there, Guterres. Uh, Simply saying, simply saying that, look, uh, you know, you're going to understand this war is in the context of 75 years of uh, the Palestinians being driven off their land and into uh, apartheid. Uh, and uh, for simply saying that, you know, Israel and the U.S. got all pushed out of shape and said he should resign. And, of course, he did. Because, look, the U.S. pays most of the bills to the U.N., as it does for the IMF and the World Bank, right? Okay.
Now, what about this delay, this delay going on? You know, I mean, the spin uh, coming out of Washington and, and, and Tel Aviv is that, uh, oh, uh, it's to give time to negotiate the release of hostages. No, no. It's to buy time to get U.S. military assets in place. Look, the U.S. has two aircraft carriers and sending two more. Four aircraft carriers to the Middle East and the Red Sea and Persian Gulf, four aircraft carriers, and submarines that they never mention, right? <laughs> submarines are there too. And of course, troops. We're pumping in troops, sending them to uh, U.S. bases in, in the area. And get Marines, you got a whole uh, battalion of Marines uh, sitting on ships offshore ready to go in. And of course, all the special forces that they don't talk about, right? Now, you think this is just, has something to do with uh, hostages, time to release hostages? No, it has nothing to do with that. Nope, not at all. Uh, it has to do with the U.S. getting ready to go to war with Iran, which has been the neocons' wet dream for decades now. Yeah, and Biden's falling for it. Look, Biden's just a puppet. He's a marionette that the neocons strings, they're pulling his strings, you know. This guy is in, in a fog. You know, he just goes out there and says what he's told and then doesn't say it very well. But I think they've decided they want to go to war with uh, Iran. Now, why? Why is the question? Why open a second front? I mean, the U.S. is effectively economically at war in Ukraine with Russia. Why do they want to open a second front? Well, that's a good question. Oh, they're saying, uh, oh, it's because, uh, uh, you know, there are some drone attacks on, on the U.S. bases in Syria. U.S. is still in Syria. And of course, it's still in Iraq. Uh, and, uh, oh, you know, there's some drone attacks. And therefore, we're going to send four aircraft carriers. <laughs> no. This is uh, trying to goad and provoke Iran into responding militarily. And then they're going to go after them with uh, hook and nail. Uh, so they can go after them. Why they go after them? Well, I think the Israelis have convinced the Americans that uh, uh, Iran almost has a nuclear weapon. Maybe they do. And uh, Israel has always wanted the U.S. Uh, to take out Iran and uh, take out that nuclear weapon because if Israel did it then uh, you know all the other countries would attack it in the area so they always want the US to do that dirty work for them and uh, the US uh, you know may have decided already to do that why else are you sending four aircraft carriers oh, and all the other assets you don't need four aircraft carriers to tie down Hezbollah in Lebanon and that's overkill. And, uh, you know, the Israelis are doing the job of obliterating uh, Gaza. Look, the Israeli strategy is clearly to obliterate the north of, of uh, Gaza, north end, to level it into rubble. Uh, they'll then uh, send some teams in and say, oh, we eliminated Hamas, and they'll come out and declare victory. And maybe, you know, 
do something to maintain uh, uh, destruction and the leveling of North Gaza and push all the people, two million people and Palestinians in Gaza into an overcrowded south, which is, will be unsustainable for that many people and uh, therefore humanitarian uh, they, they, uh, reasons the other Arab countries will have to take them. Uh, that's inevitable because they can't survive in uh, uh, physically destroyed uh, half of Gaza anymore, two million people, uh, which is what the Israelis want. You know, they want to drive the Palestinians away. And by the way, in the West Bank, we're not saying much about that, but in the West Bank, you know, murders and attacks are going on uh, everywhere. Uh, the murder rate uh, from settlers uh, murdering uh, uh, Palestinian people in, in, in the West Bank has increased as well. I mean, and they're not involved with this fight. There's no no rockets coming out of the West Bank anywhere. Uh, so Israeli policy is to flatten Gaza, go in, get out, declare victory, say they wiped out Hamas, and uh, force the two million people into half the space or less in what remains, and uh, use that as a way to uh, getting people to emigrate from what's left of Gaza. Uh, and the U.S. now is spending over $100 billion, $60 billion, you know, this bill that Biden has. He was talking about $34 billion for Ukraine. Now it's $61 billion for Ukraine. And uh, what, $17 billion more for, uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for Israel? By the way, we've been giving Israel $3 billion a year since 1979. Added up as if their economy needed it. <laughs> you know, uh, that's the power of the Israeli lobby, APAC, uh, in the U.S. Uh, but they need more money now. And that's only the beginning if this, this conflict goes on for some time. Because it, it'll, it'll wreck the Israeli economy for sure. I mean, it's not that big a country. And you've mobilized 300 reservists, I mean, 300,000 reservists. Well, those people are not working. Uh, the economy is pretty much shut down and will, especially if this thing is not resolved quickly, which it won't be. Uh, Israeli economy is going to need more support, and it's going to get it from the U.S. This is only the first tranche, the $17 billion, right? Will 60, $61 billion, uh, uh, help Ukraine? Well, you know, over half of that goes just to keep the Ukraine economy afloat. You know, the U.S. is paying all the bills for all the government, all the salaries of all the government officials, all the police, all the first responders, all the medical, right? The uh, IMF has propped up the currency, $13 billion there, you know. And the whole idea of the U.S. and Ukraine is, oh, well, we're going to freeze this thing into a, a defense a low-grade war for another year, right? We're going to give Ukraine the uh, the money it needs to do that. And Ukraine will go on the defensive, which it has, by the way. Zelensky uh, reportedly has met with uh, the head of the army there, Zeluzny, and he's told him, no more offensive. Uh, go on defense. So in other words, they want to dig in. Uh, whether the Russians go along with that, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. But, uh, you know, it's pretty tough uh, in modern warfare with all the technology to, to launch offensives now. Uh, they're, they're very deadly, and a lot of people get killed uh, in offensives. 
uh, as the Ukrainians have found out. They've lost over 300,000 uh, uh, soldiers here, and they just have a skeleton now. They're, they were uh, drafting uh, people overseas, men over 60 years old, you know, and uh, the, the uh, weapons are not coming from the West, and what's coming is in dribbles, and uh, it's not very... Uh, uh, very uh, leading edge, you know. They're giving them the old, old stuff. They only got 31 Abrams tanks, and the F-16s are going to be old junk. Uh, so, um, you know, Ukraine, I don't think can hand, can can hang on, right? I think when the Russians really decide to push their offensive, uh, they're going to go all the way to the Dnieper River, and then uh, Zelensky will have to settle for some agreement. Uh, he's tried twice, by the way, uh, but the U.S. and U.K. have said, nope, we don't want you to uh, agree to any settlement with the Russians. Uh, in, in, in March of uh, 2022, there was the deal in Istanbul signed by Zelensky, and uh, Boris Johnson comes in and says, nope, thou shalt not do that, and they didn't. And then I understand uh, uh, not too long ago, weeks, maybe months, uh, another attempt uh, by Zelensky to talk with the Russians, and that was quashed as well. The U.S. wants a long-term war there. Uh, they want to tie Russia down and bleed it. Problem is they're not bleeding Russia very much. You know, global statistics came out, and uh, Germany is now the third largest economy in the world behind the U.S. and China. They passed up Japan, but Russia's economy is now bigger than Germany's. By other data, uh, but you don't hear that in the media. <laughs> I mean, Russia should be the third largest economy, but you don't hear that. Well, a lot of that, of course, is war production because Russia's really mobilized. Uh, anyway, the Ukraine war, uh, the offensive is over. It's done. Ukraine is lost. You know, it's just a matter of time and uh, how it's going to get wrapped up in 2024. Uh, Biden's hoping he can get through 2024. You know? Uh, without too much of an issue there. He, he hopes he can, Zelensky can hold the fort and, uh, you know, have it a, a, a low-grade offensive. But I don't think that's going to work. I think the Russians will go on the offensive. There's some sign they're already doing it and pushing the Ukrainians back in a number of places. But the bottom line is, U.S. is going to spend more and more on war, 100 billion plus more than it's already spent, and it's running a $2 trillion annual budget deficit this year and a $34 trillion debt that the Federal Reserve is paying already $644 billion in interest going to the wealthy offshore and wealthy U.S. Uh, investors who are holding treasuries. And uh, monetary policy has broken down and fiscal policy who knows where the hell that's going to because you can't keep spending all that money on war and defense and keep all those tax cuts on corporations without going after John Q. Public and taking it out of his hide. Okay, that's it for today. As if it wasn't enough. I'm out of here. <laughs>